Well, war is a serious game that men play, that the prospect of going into battle is serious business where you're putting your life on the line. If such a fight to the death is unavoidable, or at the very least, you should be prepared. And this is why probably for as long as there have been armies, there have been, there's been military training. Only the most desperate countries send their men to war without preparation, without some form of training. Instead, since people's lives are on the line, you want to give your soldiers as much training and preparation as possible. For the U.S. Army, new recruits start with a 10-week regimen of basic training. During this time, they're subjected to PT, that's physical training, and lots of it. They learn how to clean and maintain their weapon, how to aim, how to shoot. They learn about battle tactics, communication, the basics of first aid. All these lessons are just drilled into their minds so that it becomes second nature when the battle comes. Now, picture a soldier going through basic training, and and he loves it. He he lives for this stuff. He loves the training. He even loves the, the physical side of it. He's the most fit. He's able to run for miles, not even getting tired. He knows his firearm inside and out, and he's a great shot as well, and he aces all of the tests, the tactics, the communication, the first aid. He's top of the class, flying colors, Sounds like he's going to be an ideal soldier, right? But that's just all classroom stuff. The real test comes on the battlefield. And this young man is shipped off to war. And when the battle comes, he shrinks away. He's paralyzed by fear. He's overcome with cowardice. He freezes up. And it's like he's forgotten everything. He forgets how to shoot, how to reload, how to aim. He's not paying attention to directions. He's not communicating with his team. He gets lost. He's bewildered. He gets injured. And he's taken out of the war. Now, would you say he was a good soldier? Well, not really. No, I mean, he wasn't. But but I thought he passed basic training with, with flying colors, top of his class. He knew it all on paper. Well, yeah, that, that may be true, but the real measure of a soldier is not how much he knows, but what he does with that knowledge. In the end, a soldier is not evaluated by his knowledge, but by his performance. And in many ways, this parallels the Christian life. Some Christian soldiers love instruction. They love to study the Bible. They love to learn about theology and doctrine, all these rich truths about God, high and lofty things. They can tell you anything about the Bible, but they they just don't really put it into practice. They're out there on the battlefield of life, and it's it's as if they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know how to resist temptation. They don't know how to be on guard. They're spiritually weak. They give in to all sorts of immorality. They don't pray, they don't trust God, they don't love others, they don't serve. They don't walk in righteousness, rather their lives are filled with ungodliness. There's this huge disconnect between what they practice and and what they preach. So would you say that such a person is a good Christian soldier? The answer is no. And that's because the measure of a God-honoring Christian is, is not merely what they know, but also what they do. It's not enough to know the truth. They must put it into practice. They must live it out. Otherwise, they're just a hypocrite or a phony. We understand salvation comes not by doing, not by performance, not by works. Salvation is a gift of God's grace in Christ, and we receive that grace 
by faith alone. That's what makes you a Christian, that saving faith. But the Bible also tells us there's such a thing as a false faith, a, a phony faith. So we're called to evaluate ourselves and to look for the character of true saving faith. And what is the character of saving faith? Well, it's a life of righteousness. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied thereafter by works, by a life of righteousness, by practicing what you preach. And so this is why we say that the mark of a true Christian soldier is not just a mind full of instruction and doctrine and theology, as important as all that is, but rather that the mark is a life characterized by living all that knowledge out. The good Christian soldier does not merely talk the talk, but also walks the walk. And no book of the Bible makes this clear like the book of James. And so you can turn now in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And after a little bit of a wait, starting today, we embark on a journey through the New Testament book of James. Over the coming months, we're going to study James verse by verse by verse and seeing what, what God has for us in his word and will through it. We'll quickly learn, though, that learning is not enough. James especially comes with a message that you must also do. We must practice all that we learn. Otherwise, your learning is useless. We must live out all of the Bible instruction we receive. Therefore, it would be a form of malpractice of the highest order to approach a book like James as a merely intellectual exercise. That would be completely missing his point, which is to encourage and exhort the church to live out their faith. This is a call to action that we must heed. Today, though, our goal is simply introduction. Just kind of get this started, get us situated, get our bearings. We're going to look at just James 1, just the first verse, and use it as a launching point just to better understand today James the book and James the person. James the letter, James the man. In this introductory study, I hope, will pay dividends down the road, just helping us see James in color instead of black and white, just understanding that the character of this short letter overall. You need to get a feel for the truly unique character of the uh, letter of James, the epistle of James, and I hope this study will help. In my time at this church so far, we've seen several writings of the Apostle Paul and and pretty much everything Peter wrote, which would in a way include the Gospel of Mark. But James is unlike any other New Testament letter. He has his own unique style, his own emphasis. And seeing that, we know that God used the particular backgrounds and and styles and characteristics of the human authors to, to pen his inspired word. It really behooves us to get to know James individually, both as a letter and as a person. And so that's pretty much our simple goal for today, just to get us started to better understand James the letter and James the person. That will set us up for the weeks and months to come. And we're going to start off with James the letter. James the letter. James as a letter can be challenging, 
because it's notoriously hard to outline. Some feel as if there's no big picture. There's no central theme. Like, what's it about? Can you give me like a one sentence? What's the main point? What's the central thrust of James? It's hard. If you try and reduce James to one single subject, you're going to fail because he really does go all over the place. But the key to understanding James, though, is is that while he may not be writing about just one topic, his overall purpose in writing is that Christians would come to apply every topic. And this really becomes a unifying theme of James. It's about a call to practice what you preach, to walk the walk. Or as James himself puts it in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James is a letter all about what it looks like to be a doer of the word. And this in itself, that, that's a big subject. That's a multifaceted subject. And so it actually makes sense why James goes to so many places. He's just showing us what it looks like to be a doer of the word in, in all aspects of the Christian life. This may also explain that the notable lack of deep doctrine and theology in James. His purpose is clearly not to write a, a doctrinal treatise, but, but an ethical one. There's no extensive teaching, for example, on the atonement or the Trinity or Christ's resurrection. And this is not because James believes instruction and doctrine don't matter. No, they matter very much. Rather, James knows his audience is, is already well-versed in the truth. It, They've done their Bible study. They know God's word. Where they really need to be challenged, though, is, is not in their learning of the word, but in the doing of the word. It's time for, for these people to put into practice all that they've learned. And so it's not surprising to find that James has a higher frequency of, of imperative commands, commands in the Greek, Greek verbs, than any other New Te- Testament letter. There's more, more commands per verse here than, than any other letter. This is a letter of exhortation. His readers don't need another theology lesson. They need to be exhorted to live out their faith. And so that's why James writes. And I have to say that those who disparage James because he's not theological enough, they fail to realize just the inherently theological nature of application. This is all part of it. It all goes together. You can't separate the two. Some fail to understand that orthopraxy, that means right living, necessarily flows out of orthodoxy, right teaching. Either of these alone is false religion. They must come together where right teaching leads to right living. Having one or the other is not enough. You must have both. And really the essential message of James is that orthodoxy isn't enough. It's not enough just to know the truth. You prove you really know it by living it out. This is a lesson James's readers needed to learn. It's a lesson we need to learn as well. There's a problem here that we all have stemming from our fundamental nature. James, he's writing to believers. Those who are born again, chapter 118, they've been brought forth by the word of truth. However, they were divided or double-minded. Or literally, he says in chapter 1, verse 8, double-souled. It's like they had two souls. 
the goal of our Christian walk is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, he says in chapter 1, verse 4. But the problem is we all suffer from this dividedness. We're divided. It's like, it's like there's two of us now. And I, I think you know what I'm talking about. I trust you've sensed this tension before. You see, we're saved. We're born again. But we still sin. We're made new. But sometimes we, we act like our old selves. In Christ, the old self is dead and gone. And we have been made new creatures in Christ. But due to the weakness of the flesh, Sometimes we don't live like that. Sometimes we sure live like our old self. We fail to live in the newness that we have in Christ. And so James says in chapter 3, verse 2, hey, we all stumble in many ways. It's like we're double-minded or double-souled. We want to love, honor, and obey God in our spirit. We, We do, we want to, but we don't always. And with our flesh and its sinful lusts, we often fall short until our redemption is complete and glory and glorification we we're divided and james addresses this dividedness throughout in chapter one we we say we trust god but sometimes we doubt and we're tossed like the waves of the sea in chapter two we we say we love others but sometimes we show partiality we say to one in need be warm and filled but we don't give him what he needs in chapter three we say with our tongue blessings to god but with our same tongue, we, we curse men. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. In chapter 4, we say we love God, but we often live like we're in love with the world. In all, we're like those who, who look at our flaws in a mirror, but then walk away and immediately forget what needs to change. James understands this inherent dividedness that lives in all believers, such that we have latent sin in our members, that the lusts of the old self still exist and therefore we must keep striving by God's grace to escape the influence of sin and overcome temptation. We need to be exhorted to to continue to give God all of our hearts in the pursuit of holiness. And in this regard, nothing's changed in in the 2,000 years since James wrote this. Here we are, we still have the same issue, the same uh, nature Fallen yet redeemed, though not fully, awaiting glory. We still have this doubleness, this double-souledness to us. Our lusts betray our knowledge and lead us away from the Lord. It kind of sounds like we still need the same exhortations and calls that are found in James. Like he says in chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. Again, he literally says, you double-souled. So like I said, though, the message of James, it's enduring. We need to receive these exhortations afresh, and we will do so. Now, I said earlier, James is known for a lack of, of teaching on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's true. But no book has more of the actual teaching of Jesus in it than James seems clear that the teaching of Jesus saturated the mind of James so much that as he wrote, it just spills out. It just comes out of him. In particular, there's a profound parallel between James and the, do you know? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. 
the, the oral teaching of Jesus was widely circulating during the time. And many have postulated that James wrote James after just meditating on the Sermon on the Mount because there are some striking correlations between Christ's sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 and this letter of James. Overlapping subjects include joy in the midst of trials, asking for good gifts, caution against anger, keeping the whole law, friendship with the world, the blessing of humility, not judging others, and the pitfall of riches, and more. And more significantly, James adapts the central message of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus confronted those who had a a false righteousness, a self-righteousness, yet while also stressing the need for a life of true righteousness. And remember, Jesus taught the true believers is the one who hears the word of God and acts on it. Remember how he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, comparing those who hear his words and act on them to the one who built his house on the rock and that house did not fall. But the one who hear his words and do not act on them is like the one who built his house on the sand. And that house fell and great was its fall. Is that not really Christ's way of saying, hey, you need to be a doer of the word and not merely a hearer only? And the similarities between Christ's teaching and James's teaching continue, we'll see those throughout as well. Now, let's just keep going. Like I said, today is just the background study, getting us situated in, in just the, the environment of James. Let's continue on then with, with the author, the audience, the date of James. It's kind of like your traditional background stuff, right? So look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Short, sweet, to the point. It's not a, not a 10, 20 verse intro like some of Paul's letters. The author identifies himself as James, bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is the author identifies himself. He's James. The bad news is He doesn't tell us which James he is. James was a very common name back then. James in English is derived from Jacob in the Greek, so really his name is Jacob. But it was extremely common back then, and there are four Jameses in the New Testament that this could be. What's even more interesting is all four Jameses are mentioned in one passage. Acts chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 mentions all four of these potential Jameses. So after the ascension of Jesus, you have the disciples. They're gathered in the upper room. Remember that? And there's like a roll call of sorts. Luke records Acts 1, verse 13. He tells us who was present after the resurrection, after the ascension. And he says in verse 13 of Acts 1, there was Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, And Judas, the son of James, verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Remember, one of his brothers was named James. So technically, that's four. That's four Jameses in two verses. So the first of these James is James, the son of Zebedee. It's a brother of John. Remember, James and John, the two brothers. 
This James was one of the original disciples, and he's featured prominently in the Gospels. He was part of Christ's inner circle, Peter, James, John. Remember them? Always going, doing things together. However, this James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was killed by Herod Agrippa I in A.D. 44. Pretty much universally agreed too early to have written this letter of James. So most do not think it was James, the son of Zebedee. Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. This James was another one of the original 12 disciples, but we don't really know anything about him. He's only mentioned in the lists of the disciples. And he's called James, the son of Alphaeus, because he needed to be distinguished from the other James, who was way more popular. So you're, you're James, son of Alphaeus. The same thing goes for Judas, the son of James. This James was a father of one of the apostles. His name was Judas, one of the original 12. Now, this Judas also needed to be distinguished from another better-known Judas, not in a good way, Judas Iscariot. So this Judas was called, we'll call you Judas, son of James. So his dad was included just to keep him separate from Judas Iscariot. Now, first, I would say it sounds like they need a little more naming creativity in the ancient world. It's like a lot of overlap here. But anyway, neither James, the son of Alphaeus, nor Judas, son of James, neither of these Jameses were, were well known enough to have written this authoritative letter under the name James alone. Because notice, he just says James. This is coming from James. See, whoever wrote this epistle had to be so well known that everyone who received it would have immediately known who it was talking about on a first name basis. It's like today when people come and visit, we, we talk about or, or maybe take them to the Madonna Inn. They always think it's named after the singer. Her name is so ubiquitous that it's just that's a default. You hear Madonna, that's what you think. We have to qualify. All other Madonnas must be qualified. No, no, it's Madonna the rancher. And they still don't know. Anyway, this really leaves us with only one option, and that's James, the half-brother of Jesus. And that is who wrote this letter. He's not mentioned by name in Acts 1.14, but he was there with his mother Mary in the upper room, like we read. James, the brother of Jesus, rose to great prominence in the early church. He became the head of the church in Jerusalem. He's the only one who could have written this letter with such authority using his first name alone. His conclusion is supported by some early church fathers as well. And although we won't do this study, there, there's one speech of James recorded in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. And you compare the language of his speech and James, and there's remarkable linguistic parallels. It's, it's stunning, actually. At the very least, it leads you to believe these two people wrote the same thing. That's kind of advanced. You can study that on your own. That James, the brother of the Lord, wrote James, also fits the character and the circumstances of this letter. And so let's briefly discuss the original audience of James, which helps shed some light on its authorship. If you look again at verse 1, you'll see it's addressed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. This nomenclature of, of 12 tribes always refers to national Israel in the New Testament. However, at the time, national Israel was in rough shape. They had no national sovereignty, and the 12 tribes had been scattered and dispersed several times. 
By Christ's day, as you probably know, Jews were living all throughout the Roman Empire. They had been scattered many times. This fact is confirmed where in Acts 2, Pentecost in Jerusalem gathered together were Jews, and they were coming from all over the, the Roman world. Remember, though, many of those Jews came to salvation. Acts 2, that was the beginning of the church, 3,000 saved, then another 2,000. And many of those Jews relocated to Jerusalem for some time so that they could sit under the, the teaching of the apostles and learn more about the Christ. And this is where James comes in. The original apostles ended up traveling quite a bit. And for various reasons, James, the brother of the Lord, that one, he rose to, to great prominence in the Jerusalem church. Over time, he became the, the stationary kind of permanent head of the Jerusalem church. You could say he was their, their senior pastor. And remember, that church originally consisted entirely of Jewish Christians. These were all Jews who had converted to follow Christ. Remember, though, after Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 7, these Jewish Christians were now starting to be dispersed all over the empire. So now you have Jewish Christians who are scattered all over. And it's to these dispersed Jewish Christians that James is writing. We learn in the letter that these Jewish Christians were dirt poor. They were impoverished and they were being taken advantage of by wealthy landowners. They were suffering trials and tribulations. So James writes to them, most likely still from Jerusalem, he's writing as their pastor to encourage them and to exhort them in the midst of all of their trials abroad. All this helps to explain the very distinct and obvious Jewish flavor to James, which again fits the authorship of James, the brother of the Lord. James describes their assembly as a synagogue in chapter 2, verse 2. He assumes they've all long since been acquainted with monotheism in chapter 2, verse 19. All throughout, James treats his leaders like they're well acquainted with the Old Testament law. And he, he uses many Old Testament allusions, about 40 of them. When James needs an example, he uses an Old Testament hero like Abraham, Isaac, Rahab, Job, and Elijah. All this leads most biblical scholars to believe that James was written quite early, while the church was still mostly Jewish and not Gentile. The environment of this epistle reflects a primitive early Christianity, still in its formative stages, and still largely Jewish in character. There are no mentions of Gentile Christians in James, or Gentile issues, or the Jerusalem Council, which James presided over in AD 49. That, again, that's recorded in Acts 15, where the church and the apostles needed to make a decision about what to do with all these Gentile converts in the church. And it became a big issue. The fact that these issues are not mentioned at all in James leads most to believe that this letter was written before AD 49, and if that's the case, that would make James the first book of the New Testament written. That's what most believe. I believe that as well. Still a decade before the first gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 10 plus years away when James writes as the first New Testament letter. And it's true. As you read James, you're getting a glance into the past, that the earliest stages of Christianity, 
the church had flourished on the oral teaching of the apostles, but already some were starting to be martyred. The eyewitnesses of the risen Lord were a fixed group. They're starting to die. So it was time for their testimony to be preserved. And so in James, we get the earliest of that written testimony. But as we'll continue to see, the message herein is timeless and that benefits the church in all the ages, including today. And we'll see its profit continue as we go through it. All right, well, I hope you're getting a, a feel now, a better feel for James, the letter, what this little epistle is all about. And you should probably start reading it a bunch and help you out a little bit more. But with the remainder of our time, let's, let's get a little feel for James, the person, the man behind the letter. The more we learn about James, the person, the more we know about his life and his character, the better we'll, we'll understand the words that flow from his mind under God's inspiration. So here's a, a quick little biographical sketch of James, the brother of Jesus from Scripture. Again, we're talking about James, the brother of the Lord, although he'd probably qualify the half-brother of the Lord, the whole virgin birth thing, remember that? But several passages make crystal clear that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus. A couple passages even mention the names of Christ's half-brothers. Matthew 13, you have Jesus, he's returning to his hometown of Nazareth to preach. And only now Jesus has become quite popular. All of his hometown people, they've heard the stories of, of his miracles, his wonders, his amazing teaching. But they are not believing in him as the divine Messiah. And so they say in Matthew 13, 55, 56, they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So here we learn in this passage the names of his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Again, they need some different names. Uh, Side note, how, how kind of bizarre is it that Jesus grew up with brothers named Simon and Judas? That Judas, by the way, he's the good Judas. He's the Judas who wrote the letter of Jude in the New Testament. But anyway, both here and in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, in, in these two lists, the name of James comes first, which leads us to believe he was the oldest brother after Jesus. But James and his brothers, they did not believe in Jesus. Did you know that? As Jesus goes on to say in this passage, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. You see, growing up, Jesus did not perform miracles. In case you were wondering, he's not walking on water as a toddler. He's not multiplying bread and wine as a teenager. He, he on purpose, did no miracles until his active ministry. Growing up, though, he was sinless. So by that occasion, he would have stood out. I'm sure his brothers thought he was just strange or weird or, or a goody two-shoes. And I'm also sure their own self-righteousness was incited by his true righteousness. I mean, what's worse than a sibling who thinks he's perfect? How about a sibling who is perfect? I mean, talk about being your parent's favorite child. How do you not play favorites when one of your children literally never sins? And so do you think his brothers grew up probably resenting him? 
It doesn't say, but it's really not hard to imagine. But the animosity really escalated when Jesus began his active ministry because now he is going around. He's doing all these amazing miracles. He's healing lepers, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. And I'm sure they're thinking like, what's going on? This is not the Jesus we grew up with. He didn't do this. Also, now he's teaching like this skilled rabbi. He's got some guys following him around 24-7. It's like they're thinking, what's gotten into their brother? Who does he think he is? The Messiah? Yeah, right. There's no doubt that his brothers had the same misconceptions about the coming of the Messiah as the rest of the Jews. He was going to be this conquering king, not like this, our brother Jesus. He doesn't fit the bill. So basically, during the active ministry of Jesus, whenever we encounter his brothers in the Gospels, they always think he's crazy. Not really crazy, but they think he's this religious zealot who's gone way overboard. That's what they think of him. Jesus was the original Jesus freak, you could say. That's what they thought. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus, he comes to Capernaum. That was his new home base in Galilee. He enters this home, and it's jam-packed with a crowd of disciples. It's standing room only. People are shoulder to shoulder. It's so packed, they couldn't even prepare a meal, so he's just skipping meals and teaching. And his brothers are thinking, like, has Jesus become some sort of cult leader? And Mark 3.21 says, When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. In the context, it makes clear this is primarily talking about his brothers. And they think he's finally lost it. This new lifestyle of an itinerant preacher, it's just too much. It's gone too far. This is not how Jesus was raised. This is not how he grew up. James must have thought that his brother had become this religious nut. And it was time to just take him home, even by force, talk some sense into him. We've got to just, this is too much. His brothers weren't the only ones who didn't take Jesus seriously. In that same passage right after in Mark 3, it says some scribes had come up from Jerusalem to check Jesus out. And they too were not believing. They thought Jesus was out there. Remember what they said of Jesus, that same passage. They said that he was possessed by Satan and he cast out demons by the power of of the devil. You see, there were others who thought Jesus was just bizarre, strange, Definitely not the Messiah. They, they couldn't deny his power, though. His miracles were too real. All they could do was attribute his power to the devil. And I would imagine his brothers probably nodded in approval with the scribes. I mean, if Jesus was really the Messiah, then surely that the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have recognized him, right? Maybe, maybe he is possessed. Later in the same context, His brothers arrive to take Jesus away as if they know what's best for him. It's time to take their their crazy cult leader brother home. That's when Jesus says this, Mark 3, 31. It says, then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, Jesus said, who are my mother? And my brothers looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. 
saying that actually kind of sounds like James, the letter, right? The true believer is the one who hears the word of God and, and what? Does it. Jesus said that first. Only in this time, he said that as a rebuke to both the scribes and the Pharisees and to his brothers, primarily. His brothers were these professing Jewish believers, but they were deluded hearers only, not doers of the word. We can only imagine James later in life reflecting on this incident, realizing that, you know, back then he was the crazy one. He was the one who was out of his senses because he, he couldn't see what was so plain that Christ, his brother, was the Messiah. Having later come to his senses, James learned that the true brother of the Lord is the one who hears the word of God and does it. But for the time being, throughout the whole life and ministry of Jesus, his brothers did not accept him. John chapter 7 verse 5 confirms and it says that his brothers, not even his brothers, were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. It's pretty remarkable. The unbelief of James persisted through his death as Christ was hanging on the cross. His mother was present, but his brothers were nowhere to be found. I imagine they were mourning the tragic death of their deranged brother, this idealistic zealot who died for his lost cause. But after his death, something changed. Something changed in his brothers, including James. We read Acts 1 already, which takes us after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so they're gathered in that upper room in Jerusalem. We have all of the first disciples. They're all there. The 11 disciples are present, minus Judas Iscariot. Mary, his mother, is present. Who else is present? We read his brothers. His brothers were there. And it's very clear from the context that they are now included in the roster of true believers in Jesus Christ. So in this very short time, they went from not believing, rejecting like everyone else to they're there. They're signed up. They've bowed the knee. What happened? What happened in this short time that transformed these brothers from deniers to believers? Well, the resurrection happened. And it seems that Jesus appeared to James in particular, melting away his unbelief. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, tells us the risen Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then to 500 brethren at one time, and then to James, and finally to Paul. But we don't know anything else about this resurrection appearance to James, but we do know its effect James was transformed. Whatever happened in that meeting, James was clearly transformed. He went from doubt to faith, from denial to belief. Look one more time at James chapter 1, verse 1. He says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, do you think James grew up with some envy of Jesus, animosity, jealousy, resentment, even hatred. Whatever it is, that's all gone now. Who is James? How does he identify himself? He's merely a bond servant. The word is slave, a slave of God and not just God, 
Any Jew would say that, but and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't identify himself by the honorific title. It is the brother of Jesus talking. He never used that. Rather, simply slave. He was now just a slave of God and the Lord Christ Jesus. Notice he also puts Jesus now on the same footing as God. Jesus is both the divine Lord and the Christ. James now, he gets it. He's in full confession mode. He now sees clearly who his brother really is. He's the divine Messiah. He is the divine Messiah. What what a transformation and a turnaround. And the second half of James's life would be markedly different. He spent the first half of his life denying and opposing Jesus, but he would spend the second half of his life confessing it and serving Jesus. James officially became an apostle, according to Galatians 1.9. He was part of the foundation of the church. More than just an apostle, Paul says in Galatians 2.9 that James was one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John. These these men were were the central men Christ used to, to build his church. More specifically, like I said, James became the head of the Jerusalem church, which back then, that was the mother church. Every time we see James in the book of Acts, he's he's the first among equals. He's a pastor of pastors. He's there leading the church, strengthening the church at home and abroad. And James remained faithful in his Jerusalem post to Christ until the end. The last we hear of James is in Acts 21. That's where Paul is arrested due to Jewish persecution. But those same Jews who finally got to Paul, well, they they eventually turned on James as well. He was known as James the Just because of his reputation of righteousness. He was upright, but that didn't stop them from killing him. Josephus tells us James was stoned to death. Another source tells us they took James up to the pinnacle of the temple, threw him off, but he didn't die, so they beat him to death. We don't know which of these is true, but it seems very clear that James died a martyr in around AD 62 for the sake of Christ. And just think, he went from being a doubter and a denier to, to a believer and a confessor, even willing to now die for the sake of his faith and his brother, who is Christ the Lord. And it's really from this, from the life and from the transformation of James, that we find a little lesson worth reflecting on. Because I bet you know people like James, the religious skeptic. I was once like James. You know, they think, okay, Jesus may surely have been, you know, a historical figure, fine, but nothing more. He was, at best, a religious nut, a zealot for his cause. But he's not, he's not the divine Messiah. And you try and convince this person, you argue with them, you give all your best proofs, but they don't believe. Nothing you say causes them to see Jesus for who he really is. It's so clear to you, but they just can't see it. Learn from James, though, that there's hope for such people to change, that they can change. But that hope is not found in you. You don't have the power to change them. You can't be clever enough. You can't be convincing enough. You can't make them bow the knee to Jesus. And that's because they're dead. Spiritually, they're deaf. They're unable to hear the truth of God. They're blind. 
They're unable to see the glory of Christ and spiritually they're dead. They can't change themselves and you can't change them either. But hope comes in God and the gospel. Hope comes in the transforming power of sovereign grace. And the life of James displays that. Because how are the deaf made to hear and the blind made to see? And the dead raised to new life. It's only by the resurrection power of Christ. And when God gives this power, the spiritually dead raised to new life. And they're able to behold Christ in the gospel. And they willingly bow their own knee, being made to believe. James understood this. He says in James 1.18, that in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This phrase brought us forth. It's talking about this transformation of new birth. And James teaches that God himself must sovereignly work. He says in the exercise of his own will to bring us forth, to make us new creatures. And James's own life is proof positive of that. This skeptic turned believer, just like that. And notice, James testifies that God sovereignly works, but he does so through means. What means? That in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. James encountered the incarnate word, but God has placed his same transforming power in his written word. And so this is where your hope is found. Have you encountered that denier, the skeptic, the unbeliever? Well, your hope, preach the word of truth to them. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. That, that's their only hope. And there's power in nothing else. And as the word of truth goes forth from your lips, as God wills, he will use it to bring the dead to new life. And instantly, that skeptic, we transformed. They'll believe everything. You won't have to convince them anymore because God will give them new eyes to see everything that is so crystal clear to you. This is the only way. You won't need to convince them any longer, though, because they will run to Christ of their own accord by the word of truth, which makes them alive by God's spirit. And it doesn't matter if a person has wasted half their life or three quarters of their life or seven eighths of their life. As long as it's still called today, there's hope for them to be transformed by the word of truth and mightily used by God thereafter. And so you just keep being faithful to the word of truth, to minister the word of truth to men and women like James. You trust God to do his work of transforming through the word of truth, and he will. Now I should probably ask, have you been transformed? Have you been made a new creature in Christ? How can you even tell? What does a transformed believer even look like? Well, in the weeks and months to come, that's precisely what we're going to learn from James. James teaches us that the same word of truth that brought us forth, that transformed us, that same word of truth proves its presence in our lives as we become doers of that word of truth and not merely hearers. 
It's a lesson we'll see in time to come. I look forward to it. I hope you do as well. For now, let's pray. Our Lord God in heaven, we praise you this morning for your word of truth, which you have sent to bring us forth to serve Christ, to know Christ, to treasure him, to bow the knee of our own accord. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your word. Apart from your sovereign grace, the exercise of your will, we would still be lost like James, doubters and deniers. But we praise you for your work in our hearts. We pray you continue to work as we know you will. Perhaps even in some here this morning, but certainly in many in the world, may we be faithful to minister your word of truth, to cling to it, to share it, knowing you will raise the dead through it, Lord. And all the while, may we be doers of that word. We'll learn much about that in time to come, but already convict our hearts of the need to to live out the word of truth you've implanted in our hearts. All to your glory and praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.